You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. The world of business is a challenging one. From the youngest entrepreneurs to the biggest and most respected names across Canada, you need to have a strong will, determination, and skills to navigate to the top. I'll be talking to everyone from budding entrepreneurs to the established leaders in the world of business. You'll hear their stories of where they were, where they are, and where they're going. I'm Manjeet Minhas, and this is my podcast. Hello, and welcome to today's show. My guest today is Natalie Marshall, founder of the sleepwear brand Kip. Natalie has worked hard over a decade to be where she is today. She graduated from McMaster University in 2012 and took a job at the Hudson Bay Company that would allow her to take on different marketing roles. With all the valuable knowledge and experience she gained, she would go on to found Kip in 2016. Let's talk to her now and find out more about her journey. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you for having me. So you were born in Surrey, England, and you lived there for a very short time before you emigrated to Canada as a young child. And you always really loved not only pajamas, but you would treasure one that you received as a child. And so that really, from what I understand, is the spark of your entrepreneurship journey. So maybe we can start talking about your childhood in England and what you remember. For sure. I mean, like you said, I was I was 11 when I moved to Canada, so it is quite young. And it's also a country that many think at first, like first glance, like it's not, can't be astronomically different from Canada. But looking back now, it definitely was, there definitely was a culture shift. Definitely one of those things where I didn't realize it when I was a child, like things like receiving a, those pajamas was just like a great reminder of home. And it was also like a great reminder that I find the UK is so rooted in history and so much about classic products, classic things, timeless pieces, I would say more so than maybe like fast fashion in North America. So the pajamas itself were a reminder of that as a kid. And even growing up in university, I'd wear like these pajama sets that like people would kind of look at me funny for because everyone was in their like university (laughs) hoodie going to bed and I was in like a full on button down set. But that's just what I knew and what I grew up with and how that like my culture seemed to be ingrained in me in a kind of a unique way. For sure. In England, less is more. Part of it is space. They don't have mm-hmm. all the space like we do in mm-hmm. North America to just buy things and keep them and hoard them. Mm-hmm. But it also is more intentional shopping and, and fashion pieces for sure. And so why did your family move to Canada? What was the adventure there? Um, it's funny. My parents actually came on an entrepreneurial status. So they immigrated here under the condition that they had to start a business. Oh, And really at the time, unlike a lot of people immigrating under a skilled trade where they were coming here for X job and there was a need for that job, i.e. an engineer, they were really coming for a fresh start, which is interesting because thinking about me being their age now when they came here, like I would never take that risk. And it was a really big move for them to do so, but they, they wanted a better life for themselves. And they thought they could do that in Canada and then wanted a better life for me also. And they thought that they could do that here. And so what business did they start here? My mom started making dried floral arrangements back in the UK and really actually calling upon like North American home design trends and making her own products for the home and not just flower arrangements. She would use like dried beans to make these things you would hang on the wall. It was great to see and definitely the entrepreneurial thinking got me started at a young age, but also I did see 
a real small, small business in the sense that my mom was everything. And I think I was aware at like 14 years old that there was better ways of doing it. So I saw them work so, so hard, but almost work in a way that like, I didn't want to see that for them and how they ran that business. And if I ever started a business, which I now have gone on to do, I wouldn't want to do it that way myself. Gotcha. It's interesting what we take away when we're young from our parents and from those around us, good and bad to say, I want to do that or absolutely not, or I would do it differently. When you're in it, sometimes you don't completely know where and how those feelings will manifest themselves later, but really interesting. And so you decided to major in marketing and project management at McMaster. And so what did you believe that your career path would be? I was definitely the girl in school that found her identity when she went to university and her major was her identity. So I really thought I was going to graduate and my end goal would be to be the CMO of a a major national corporation. I was like, that's where I want to go to. Maybe I'll be an entrepreneur, but I more so saw it in like a consulting sense of whatever field. I really aspired to that big office, white collar, boardroom style work environment that back when I was in school, it was where you wanted to go. Companies would come to our school to recruit, but it was the PepsiCo's of the world. It was the Frito-Lays of the world. And that's where I thought my interest would lie. But it was only until I got into the real world. And then you, you see a different side of big corporate America that, that you're not always educated about when you're, when you're in school. Very, very true, for sure. And so when you finished school, then you got a job at the Hudson Bay Company. Mm-hmm. And so what was that like? I loved it. I loved it mostly because at the time I was working in the e-commerce department and this was 2012 when the e-commerce department was about 30 people. I know when I left in 2015, it was over 300. So my role in 2012 was probably the equivalent of doing five people's roles in 2015. So my breadth of knowledge of the industry was really great at that time. And from all my mentors, whether it was professors or business leaders, and I was really invested in getting, even at a young age, and getting to know people who were leaders in their spaces, everyone kept saying, go to an area that's growing and go to a place where you can learn. So it was a challenging work environment, but I always felt like I was learning. So I was always having a great time there. And honestly, had you asked me a year into my work there, I thought I would maybe be there forever and like aspire to be like the Hudson's Bay CMO, for example. It wasn't until I, again, learned the challenges of working for corporate America and mergers and acquisitions and how when those instances happen, your roles can change. And it was only upon my role kind of going from th- going from this big to this small that I was kind of like, I'm not being challenged anymore. And, and my personality type, as soon as that happens, I'm, I'm less engaged. Right. And interesting, you definitely found a place that was growing in 2012. E-commerce was definitely just on the cusp of about to explode people, including big companies, taking it seriously and having a plan and putting mm-hmm. more resources to it. That's a phenomenal growth in three years, just amount the sheer amount of people in that mm-hmm. department. And so mm-hmm. while you were there, what, what did you learn about the online world and about marketing and about retailing in a very different way than you were being exposed to that the rest of the world, the way they were buying was exposed to? I think I was taught, first of all, at the time, the importance of omni-channel. I think retailers at that time For example, the Bay, everything 
from a Bain marketing perspective, a lot of it derived from the flyer. So a flyer was created and then digital would kind of trickle down from that. If someone heard that today, they would gasp that the digital strategy <laughs> was being derived from the traditional strategy. So right. learning learning how the strategy evolved was, was a very interesting component. I think I also learned about being consistent across channels. That's something like we do in, in my company today, having a consistent message. The Hudson's Bay was also immensely big on having a strong brand voice. And that's something that I learned how they very distinctly defined it. And I think as well, even in my own experience, I was in marketing and I was working with creatives and I learned how important that dynamic was in order to be strong because I saw how certain departments, marketing and creative wouldn't mesh and that you would see that in the output of the content or of the strategy. So that's something I focus on a lot now too is the person on my team responsible for that and making sure that the relationship with the person actually doing the creative, there, there's a good flow there. So I learned that as well. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that, especially the fact that the omni-channel, that there, there are different customers in different areas. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you do have to speak to them differently. And yeah. I think that it's so much easier for especially small businesses and entrepreneurs to say that we're going to do one thing and do it across all channels because it's easier. Yeah. Right. We don't all have the budgets, but it's not about completely changing it. Sometimes it's just about tweaking it. And like you right. say, there is that fine line between a consistent brand voice and completely changing it based on who your consumer is. And so how have you brought that into Kip and the fact that you were starting the sleepwear brand and a lot of it is definitely around the branding and the quality and the lifestyle, because it is a lifestyle brand, not just a product, mm-hmm. for sure. And how have you done that in your own company? I think first and foremost, myself and my team, we're very explicit about always focusing on who our customer is. And then part of any conversation, actually, from this summer, when I noticed us wavering a bit, we revisited who the customer was and we now have a working brand wheel that any conversation we have around how we're speaking to her what we're doing what we're marketing how we're marketing we're looking at that wheel i find it's very easily to like do a great exercise like look what the landscape is doing let's say the sleepwear market and then go to a competitor and go oh they're doing that okay we should do that but then we backtrack and go but is their customer our customer because the landscape, the market of sleepwear is, is is massive now. It's growing. There's many great people doing many great things, but there's many tiers to that. I think defining our customer is the number one thing. And like you say, whether it's digital, whether it's print, whether it's promotions, in-store activations, wholesale partnerships, it's all about our customer. Is she going there? Is she buying that? Is she buying in that way? What channels is she on? Is she on desktop? Is she on mobile? And, and, and building strategy that way around where our customer is and how she behaves. And so in 2016, when you decided that you were going to come up with this brand and start this company, you obviously knew that you wanted a quality pajama. And so how did you go about deciding where you were going to get it made, how the style was going to be different, what fabrics? Were you an expert in any of these things, whether it be you know, sewing fabric. <laughs> how did you, how did you start? I laugh because I could not have been further from a, a knowledgeable person <laughs> in product development. Gotcha. I think one of the first lessons someone ever told me in entrepreneurship, I don't remember when it was told, told me this, but it was kind of like outsource your weaknesses. 
And that's something I knew from the start. It didn't matter how much time I was going to be neurotically Googling how like the supply chain cycle worked or how product development worked. I was never someone who was going to source my own factory workers and know how to develop a product expertly. So from the start, I was kind of more so focusing on finding a good partner domestically who would be a thought leader in the space to help guide me on manufacturing best practices. And I was also lucky enough that my business idea came from inspiration from where I'm from back home. So I had sample products that I could kind of use as a benchmark from 10, 15 years prior to kind of say this, I don't find exists in the marketplace. And this is kind of the benchmark of what I'm looking for, as opposed to just like verbally describing something or trying to put pen to paper and, and doing it that way. In terms of launching to start, it was entirely self-funded. And at the time I was 26 years old. My life partner and husband is also an entrepreneur, also at the same time doing his own thing. So we did not have an infinite pot of money to throw at it. So it was, how can we get this thing off the ground with at least risk to us personally as possible? So we, we launched that first line at the end of 2016 with four colors of pajama set and four nightshirts. And I think my first production order was $10,000. I remember shaking when I, at the time when that was like, we had to turn that money over to do that. But it was like the minimum viable investment I had felt at the time to kind of get it off the ground. Yeah, scary moment for sure when you're signing that check and you know it's going to be cashed and gone. Yeah. Now you got to hustle to sell. And so I like that you you said that you got coaches and consultants. I think that entrepreneurs sometimes really do believe that if you outsource any of that or go to you know the subject matter experts, that you're saying that you don't know, mm-hmm. that you're losing some control. But I would say the opposite. I definitely go to consultants and coaches as much as I can for everything, from my health to my business. Right. Because I think that it's great that you can lean on them when you need them. It doesn't have to be a permanent relationship. That's the whole basis of such a thing. And so you had $10,000 worth of pajamas and, and shirts. And now what? How did, you, how did you sell the first batch? It was um, an evolution. I think in the early days, there was a lot of me... I live in Midtown Toronto, where I would definitely say our core clientele in this market definitely lives. So that's holiday season. I was at private school shows. I was at local business holiday shops where I would sit with my my little table of my pajamas and offer the product. And from the start, I was very passionate about monogramming, something we now have all of the machinery to do in-house and a team that does it. But at the time, it was me sending it off to an embroiderer to do it. So I would have my little samples of the custom product. And it was something that it was kind of those first few sales and those women would tell other women, which was great. Another thing I did, which is so mainstream now, and there's dedicated roles to it, was I was finding women who I felt were tastemakers on Instagram in society, in the fashion world and messaging them. Some of them... I was offering product too, but keep in mind, I, my production order was 10,000. You can imagine I didn't have a lot of units to, to give away. And then other women, I would offer the product at 40% off. I would message them and say, we'd love for you to be the first to try it. And again, this was 2016 where like influencer gifting wasn't as structured and robust as it is today. But I was surprised how that really took off. And I was also surprised 
how supportive the Canadian fashion space is, leaders in the Canadian fashion space are of supporting Canadian brands. And that was my first taste of that. And I think the following spring is where through someone, through someone, through someone, we got our first features on, for example, the Maryland Dennis show and things like that. So it really came down to me one-to-one messaging. And now I have a lot of great personal relationships with a lot of these people who are, let's say, on-air stylists or, or people like that. Yeah, I like it. And I think it's a good example for all entrepreneurs that it didn't catch on fire right away. And most 99% of businesses don't. I think mm-hmm. so many entrepreneurs and when they start, if it isn't, isn't an instant hit, they think that, oh my God, what am I done wrong? Because everybody else around me is an instant hit. And that's not yeah. usually the case. By any mm-hmm. means, it's that we compare ourselves to really unrealistic goals, but also stories that we hear from literally the unicorns. You're really creative marketing and cold calling. You know, sometimes that is when you're out of the box and trying something new, you don't know if it's going to hit. And, and nice to know that you were doing it before it was really a thing mm-hmm. and or people really understood it and that you mm-hmm. were brave enough to say, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And my big thing too was because my product was at a certain price point, because I wanted it to appear in a certain way, I was always big on, for lack of a better way of saying it, making my company look bigger than it did. Mm-hmm. That would mean like trying to make contact with people, trying to get on air segments earlier. I found that all easy, way easier than I, than I thought it would be. But those things gave me the cachet or the validation to say I was on X show or my feature, my product was featured in X magazine. And that led to other opportunities. Good point. I think that a lot of people wait for those opportunities to come to them. But often it's really about reaching out and being right place, right time when they're looking for that too. Because I think everybody assumes that all types of media have all of those types of things at their fingertips. I even talk about Dragon's Den mm-hmm. all the time is the fact that when people ask me like, oh, well, they pro- producers probably choose who to come and pitch. That's not the case. So if you reach out to them, you have a better chance than them digging through the World Wide Web to find you. So I agree with you. That definitely is interesting. And so how has the community, the fashion industry been? Are you in touch with many? Do you have allies, sponsors, mentors within the industry that you feel like the relationships have maybe helped you? So many. I think, first of all, like other creators, I find we're all quite collaborative. And there's many women like I really looked up to, like, for example, like the brand Centler. I think they've done such a great job in the outerwear space. And I kind of look to them as being a leader in that space the way we want to be and carved out not only the Canadian market, but they're huge players in the North American market as a whole. Ella for her handbags, she's done a great job and someone I keep in touch with just to see, again, we have different products, but they're not speaking to dissimilar people. So I find it really valuable to speak to someone like her. And then, like I mentioned, a lot of the on-air stylists for all of the shows we keep in contact with them. They keep in contact with us. And like you said, it's not just waiting for them to message when they have a segment. We're regularly engaging with them and trying to give them ideas about how our product can be pitched. Another um, big one, her account is Style by Kim. She used to do a lot of celebrity styling and now she's a big on-air specialist. And she her support, support over the years has been unmatched. And she's also led me to introduce to different B2B partnerships. For example, she had an influencer relationship with the company Stearns & Foster. They create mattresses. 
and she introduced me to their marketing team. And we've gone on to create a unisex pajama for them that was given away to anyone who purchased their mattress during their 250, or sorry, their 150 year anniversary. So that was such a huge opportunity for us and something that now that company is looking to do more things like that. And it even impacted that line of business for us. We, we love doing co-branded and private label partnerships now because we can be so nimble. And now that we manufacture overseas, there's limitless opportunities. So those people have made such great introductions there too. Yeah, great to know that that it, it, it takes a village <laughs> in order mm-hmm. to make something work. And it is not just anybody doing anything on their own, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so it's been almost seven years into the lifespan of Kip. And so what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've had to face? I think before I offshored production, I think producing domestically was a challenge from one, from a cost perspective and two, from a scale perspective. Once I was able to do that, it like opened up the doors for us to be able to take on product projects of all sizes. If something was too small, we couldn't do it domestically. Also, if something was too big, we couldn't do it domestically. So in our instance, that worked really well for us. And we, I think we spent almost a year finding the right partner to do that with. And we're incredibly happy and we find the quality better than we ever had in the, the history of the brand. I think another big challenge for us is the wholesale growth model. I think how to approach that and how to approach growing in the U.S. market has definitely been a challenge too. We've had a great track record in the Canadian market and retailers are more so eminently aware of us and familiar with us because of our presence in media. But in the U.S., it's a whole different beast. So there's always a balance of do we want to own that relationship? Do we want to do the outreach? Do we want to dedicate a team member to managing those relationships in the U.S.? Or do we want to find someone who is an expert in that space and, again, outsource it? So that's something we're continuously growing and looking at. And I think personally... The biggest thing I've had to face this year is becoming a mother Mm. and in a big way and not just of of, of a daughter as well, which I feel extra driven, motivated, questioning of things more than I ever have. So it's it's been an interesting thing to throw in the mix for sure. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I, I definitely agree. Having kids change things. It changes things, you know, in a variety of different ways, good and bad. But one thing, Definitely. I, I agree with you is that having a daughter, I have two daughters myself, is that sometimes it changes your perspective on some of the decisions that you're making and why it makes you sometimes ask a little bit deeper to yourself because often, you, you know, you have to justify you feel to them mm-hmm. later on and you have to look out for them. And so how do you think that that has changed other than you have less time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, You have to keep this little human alive, which is a big job too. But how do you think it's changed your management style? It's something I've always been acutely aware of the fact that our team is all female. Mm. I have a husband who we work very closely together. He has his own business. It's all male. So I'm very reminded on a daily basis, the difference between male and female organic energy and how they operate. So I'm very passionate about developing females. And since having a daughter, it's just made me hyper-focused on first and foremost, being a good leader of that. So I find I'm in a good way critical of myself, of of being a good leader to set a good example, not just for my team, but for for my daughter too. So I feel like in the best way possible, it's making me a better person. And the lack of time component is definitely a factor. And it's funny because I would always consume all this content about human optimization and 
and how to schedule your day and how to time batch and all of these tools and tricks that you hear about in the entrepreneurial space. But it wasn't until I had her and I literally witnessed that my inefficiencies were taking away from her that I actually really enacted those things. Whereas in the past, I would do certain things. And yes, I would definitely try and focus on being as efficient as possible. But there's nothing like having your own child at home that makes you really put those into action. Very true. And so what tool or tools do you use that have really, you found been successful? I think one of the first ones, like I just said, was time batching. So I, I have, so it's like when you dedicate certain times of the day to a specific category of tasks versus like all day working on a myriad of things, I try in certain days of the week, my one uh, colleague, we work directly on, let's say, wholesale development or work on product development, as opposed to in a day working on whatever comes into the inbox or whatever it needs is a hot button. I feel that allows me to work on things more clearly and, and actually make more progress in those categories. I know some people do it as micro and I haven't gotten there yet, but as only answering emails on Wednesdays between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., that sort of thing. So I'm getting there. I'm also changing my day around. I'd be someone that would go into the office. I'm lucky to have several team members. I want to support those team members. So I would get in. My day would be about serving others. And then it would be the end of the day and all my critical thinking independently would have to happen when I have no energy left. So I think having a young four-month-old and and being awake at those early hours in the morning, I'm finding (laughs) it a good opportunity to right. take that time and work on things at the beginning of the day when I'm sharper focused and work at quote unquote work on the business before working in the business later in the day. Yeah, I like that. Those are some interesting strategies. And I think the takeaway there definitely is the fact that everybody has different strategies that work for them and you got to do some experimentation mm-hmm. to know what works for you. I like that really interesting to know your personality, but also that the focus and the time that everybody needs in order to do something is different. Like I'm one that needs an hour and anything more than that, I start to get bored and I'm like, okay, what's next? But like I did this, I didn't know that the term was used that, but I've tried every strategy myself, but it is about Mm -hmm. finding what works for you when mornings or evenings or everybody's different for sure. But if you haven't tried one, you don't know what, what is best for you and for those around you. So I love that you figured somewhat of it out. <laughs> in yeah, four it's, months. It's, a, it's an ongoing learning process and it changes day by day. Who knows? If you talk to me in two months, it may be very different. When, like you're, said, when, you're I, sleep, when you're sleep training, it might change, you know? <laughs> oh, yes. I'm so not looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk a lot about sleep and self-care. And so why are you really passionate about those two topics? I think it goes back to when I speak about my time in the corporate space and I was looking up to women who did amazing things and were incredibly successful in their spaces and and, and VPs and, and fashion retail out of New York head offices and what I aspired to be. And I looked at their schedule and they looked at their lifestyle. And I also received the advice when I wanted to, let's say, be a CMO of a major US retailer of... I didn't choose to have children and that was a decision I made. And just the general rhetoric of more is more is more is more. And it wasn't until I burnt out at the age of 24 when I was striving for all these things that I really became personally connected to the concept of rest and the concept of living a more balanced life and seeing if it was possible with being as assertive and goal-driven as I was. 
And the more I researched the topic on a personal level, the more conversations, again, this was back in 2015, where I feel like the wellness space is much more well-spoken about now. And there's much more talk around balance and rest and reset and all of those things. But I feel like at that time, there wasn't as much. So I was really invested. And I think also around that time, maybe a year or two later, Ariana Huffington's book was coming up about sleep as well. So it was really top of mind. And I obviously had always been taught in marketing. It's better to have a product that has a true mission that you can stand behind. So it really tied in nicely with my desire to want to create a beautiful line of sleepwear, but also have a brand mission that I could really speak to and women could relate to. So that's why we really wanted to consider everything in the design of the product and the design of the packaging. The fact that we like offer our product in a beautiful box with a bow because we really want to feel like you're gifting yourself kind of the gift of rest as you're receiving our product. So it's really kind of ingrained in everything we do as a brand. Gotcha. Yeah. It's interesting how the conversation has shifted. And I think only in a great way, rather than a badge of honor saying I only slept three hours a night and I didn't do anything for myself and I haven't showered or whatever, you know, the the kind of old pissing contest as to who worked more has really changed to say, no, I actually took some time for myself. I got rid of my devices. I slept. I am recharged in good ways Mm -hmm. because it proves that you actually can be more productive rather than the other way around. And that is definitely a shift that I have seen in only the last, I would say, five, you know, six years. And definitely wasn't the case in the first 15. I used to be so embarrassed to be like, I always sleep eight hours. Otherwise, I'm not a happy person to be around. But I wouldn't tell people that because, you know, it was a badge of honor to say I slept four hours and I'm back at the office. A hundred percent. I used to remember being in the corporate world and feeling really great about myself if I sent if I sent a bunch of emails at 10 o'clock at night because everyone (laughs) would think what a hard worker you are sending right. these emails and they're going to see 10 p.m. 10 p.m. on that email. And they're going to think I work way harder than them, which I hope is not the case now in, in a lot of workplaces. I hope people have changed their thought pattern. And it's so great now to see people really in a proud way posting their like aura ring sleep score on their Instagram stories because they want to show people how well they slept. I feel like that would not have been the case, like you said, five years ago, for sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting what we start to value and understand, especially in creative spaces, right? Like obviously as an entrepreneur, so much of it is day to day, but so much of it is also about creating what's next, especially Mm -hmm. in consumer packaged goods like you are. And so how, and what does your creative process look like? I think it, first of all, it always frames around the consumer. So we always start back there. We always think about her We think about who we are as a brand and who we want to be, specifically in fashion. I think it's easy for us to see some of these brands that are doing things that are, quote unquote, very trendy and very now. And then I look at those brands and I go, will that product be as hot in five years? Likely not. We are really, really, really passionate about creating a product that is classic, that we can iterate on slightly. But generally speaking, we're known for a silhouette. We're known for a quality. And we're very consistent with that. So that's not to say we haven't gotten like swayed a little bit from that in the past, but we've always learned that doesn't work. So when it comes to future development, we're really looking to, to, to that as the baseline and how we can grow from that. So for example, our cashmere socks that we make are just such a hit every holiday season, both with us and our retail partners. So this year, 
we decided to add um, cashmere layering pieces to that collection. So we're adding a short robe and a long robe, um, 100% cashmere to our assortment, just because it, it really sits nicely with our pajama. It's of the same material as our socks, and it makes sense for the woman wearing our product. We've had conversations around adding like different pieces of trim or different sparkle elements. And then it kind of goes back to anything where we're really trying to hop on a trend. We kind of take a step back and go, that may work for that person. And it's great that that's in the space, but it, it's, it's not us. Gotcha. I think so much about of being successful in the CPG space is actually saying no more than you say yes. Yes. <laughs> because you can, like you say, very quickly dilute your brand, but also get sidetracked and forget what the bread and butter is and what you're known for and what you're really good at. It's human nature to want to do everything, but it is hard. And I think the something that takes practice is to say no, to explore things, but in the end, mostly say no more than you say yes. Yeah, and and, and that's something I'm, I'm definitely learning. And I actually find being the head of the company, I find it harder than my team does. My team is actually more objective than I am. I still have that scarcity mindset of we must survive. We must take whatever opportunity is coming at us. Whereas I find I better check myself with the team. They're like, Natalie, that's not us. Why, why are we doing that? And I'm like, but there's money on the table, but the money on the table doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that thing. So. Right. But, but like you say, as founder, CEO, as leader, it is your job to say, okay, how do we get more revenues this quarter? So there's always that push and pull to say, long-term view too, but short-term, like how do we cash in? And I, yeah. and that definitely is always a challenge for sure. And so what will we, like, what are your goals moving forward for the brand, for yourself personally? What's next? For our brand, we really want to grow our distribution, not just in Canada, but in North America. That will be a big push for us next year. And we're in conversations now, which are very exciting to do that. I just think our company can be one of the pillars of the main brands in that space in North America and really want to grow awareness that way. And, and having it in physical stores in the US, I think we'll do that. Our product is something you need to touch and feel. So that's really important to me. And on a personal level, I really, really want to grow our team. Someone that I will have more ventures in my life. I know it, but I still, this is not a business to build to sell. I want to keep Kip under the portfolio. So we'll we're getting really honed in on what roles our people on our team play, how they can grow and how we can grow our team so that I'm already not, not as much involved in the day-to-day, but how we can have it. So I really sort of oversee the company and there's people really running a very sustainable business that, that is, can operate well on its own. Fantastic. So what would your advice be to entrepreneurs from all walks of life and industries looking to get their businesses started? First of all, be patient. Like we said like earlier in this conversation, the overnight successes make the news for a reason or they become top of mind for a reason. Most of my friends who are entrepreneurs are like myself, where it's five, six years in and they're finally seeing the hockey stick curve go, especially when you're self-funded. I would say too, don't be afraid to be self-funded. I know in certain instances, in certain industries, it is a necessity. But for me, it allowed me to not make as many poor decisions. I think if I had a pot of money, there are so many more things I would have done and said yes to and just thrown money at because I had it. Whereas this allowed us to be very, very deliberate with our approach. 
and be very self-sufficient from from an early age in business because we had to be. I wasn't sitting on seven figures that I could just easily pull from to expand the business. So that's another thing I would say. And back to what I said in the beginning, I'm such a huge proponent of outsourcing your weaknesses and doing that from the start. I don't see any sense. As anyone knows who runs a business, there are 500 roles you can play. I would much rather spend my time working on things that I know I'm good at than spending 10x more time on things I know I'm bad at and probably I'm not going to get better at. So I think that's when I really employed that is when I really, really saw growth in our company. Great advice. Definitely some gems there. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you like what we're doing on the show, be sure to follow us, leave us a like, rating, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode with another great guest for more insightful conversation. We'll see you again next time. Cheers.